Genesis chapter 12, as we started this series, we saw that God gave Abraham this great promise. God said, Abraham, I am going, I am going to to bless all the nations of the world through you. That's in Genesis chapter 12. And then in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we see how God uses his power and his sovereignty to build this great nation of Israel. And so now we have this great nation of Israel. And we saw last week in Joshua uh, that uh, the nation of Israel goes into the promised land, the land that God promised Abraham. Joshua got to take them over the Jordan River into the promised land. After, um, after uh, they went into the promised land, they were ruled by judges for a while. We'll talk about that uh, uh, at another time. And then they were ruled by kings. They wanted a king. And so the first king that Israel had was a man named Saul. He was the people's choice. And you know why the people wanted Saul? Because of his appearance. He was a good-looking guy and a head taller than everybody else from the beginning, we've always been impressed by appearance, haven't we? Saul didn't last long as an effective king, and God said, finally, I've had enough, and he anointed David as the king that would, uh, that would really bring the nation of Israel into this time of, of worship. And God told David, your kingdom will last forever. Now think about that. Abraham, every nation of the world is going to be blessed through you, right? David, your kingdom will last forever. How's how's that going to happen? Well, the answer to that is in the first chapter, first verse of the New Testament, when Matthew tells us the book of genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, right? In the lineage of David. So now David's throne never ceases in Jesus. The son of Abraham, in the lineage of Abraham, every nation of the world, Abraham is going to be blessed through you in who? Jesus. And so we see that Jesus is is the answer to every fulfilled prophecy of the Old Testament. Jesus is the yes to every promise in Scripture. King David was an amazing man. I mean, he was, a, he was a, a shepherd, he was a warrior, he was a leader, he was a king, he was a musician, he was a songwriter. In the Old Testament, the book of Psalms is the songbook of the nation of Israel, and David wrote 73 of the 150 Psalms. David teaches us how to worship. And so today we're, we're going to look at how to worship. We're going to dip in and out of David's life. But I want to go another step on that. I want to talk about why we worship in the first place and what worship is. Why we worship and what is worship. Let's start with the definition. Worship comes from uh, this old word, worth-ship. Worth-ship. It means, to, it, means that you, it means that you believe in your heart that something has worth, that it's worthy. And you demonstrate in your life that that thing has worth, that that thing is worthy. Now, in Scripture, there's no something we worship, but there is someone we worship, and that is God and God alone. When you're in Scripture and you look at the word worship, the subject 
or the object is always God. There is none other than him. He is God, and he is God alone. And so when we talk about worship in Scripture, we're talking about simply this, displaying the worth of God. Do you do that? Do you display the worth of God in your life? Now, just to be clear, we have all this terminology we use worship on, and we need to get better at this. We say we're going to a worship service, right? Or in worship, we raised our hands to worship. We're going to learn today you don't go to a worship service. You are the worship service. And raising your hands, that's great. That's fantastic. That's not worship. That's an expression of worship. It's a part of worship. But don't think just because you came and you sang songs loudly and raised your hands, you worshiped. Worship, we're going to see, is demonstrating the worth of God in every area of our life. It's a 24-7. It's not a worship service on a Sunday from 11 till noon. Social media, the driven world we're in, social media-driven world, we become fans and followers of people, right? We follow people. We are fans of people. And we can have, in our day and age, it's always been like that. Remember, the people picked Saul because of his appearance. So it's nothing new. But even exacerbated today, as we can go to YouTube and, and Facebook, and we can see all these people, and we can become worshipers of people, unhealthy admirations that's sinful. Revelation chapter 19, verse 9. An angel said to me, John is writing, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So this angel is appearing before John, and John says, man, it was such an amazing thing that I fell down at his feet to worship him. But the angel, not a person now, the angel said, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Say it with me. Worship God. God alone is to be worshiped. And if you worship anything else, that's idolatry. And if you worship any other person, that's idolatry. Anything that we worship, that we deem worthy and express that worthiness in our life, other than God, is idolatry. The word worship is found 111 times in the Old Testament, 76 of those times. It's translated, it's a translation of this Hebrew word, Yavah. And the Hebrew word means to bow down. It means to demonstrate with our body that we are humbling ourselves before a person, that we adore that person, that we love that person. We are bowing down. Now, that's the physical posture, but long before the physical posture is the bowing down of our heart because we know we can bow down in person and stand up in our hearts, right? And so bowing down in our hearts is part of what we do in worship. We come before God and we say all the time, not just when we're singing a great worship song, a great song. We are saying all the time, God, you are worthy 
of everything I am. You are worthy of my praise. You're worthy of my sacrifice. You're worthy of my life. I give it all to you. You alone are worthy. I bow down before you. There's another word that's translated worship, and it's the word yabah, and it means to serve. And so not only do I say, God, you're worthy, but I will serve you with all my life. I mean, this is not just lip service. I'm, I'm just talking about it. I'm not a hobby. I will serve you with all my life. Two primary words in the New Testament, in the Greek, say the same thing. Bow down and serve. And so in worship, we have these two things. We have the, we have the bowing down, the inner essence of worship. And we have the serving, the outer expression of worship. So first, let's look at the inner essence of worship. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. Here we have Jesus. He's talking to the woman at the well. She's a Samaritan woman, and uh, she has lived a sinful life, and Jesus is pointing that out. And so she kind of takes a detour. It's like, I'm kind of tired of you getting personal with me. And she says, hey, let's get religious. Let's talk about religious things. She says, we Samaritans, we worship God at this certain mountain. And you, you Jews, you, you worship God in Jerusalem. So where should, you, where should you really go to worship God? Where's the real place you go to worship God? Jesus said this, but the hour is coming and now is here that true worshipers will worship the Father in what? Spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking, God is seeking people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in what? Spirit and truth. Now, what in the world does that mean? Spirit and truth. We'll start with spirit. Remember the context. The woman asked, Do I worship God at this mountain? Do I worship God at this mountain? Do I go to the South Hills campus to worship God? Do I worship God online? Where where do I go to worship God? And Jesus said, you don't go anyplace to worship God. Wherever you are, you're worshiping. You worship God in your spirit. Your spirit is always with you. You are always adoring God. You are always, or should be, in the process of loving God. You are always in the process. Your thoughts, your feelings, your attitudes, your emotion, that's how we worship God. And we should, as we respond to all those things going on in our life, we are demonstrating God's worth in that ongoing response. And so when we have a thought come into our life that shouldn't be there, Worship is saying, God, I don't want that thought there. Take me to the thought that you want me to have. When I have a certain feeling in my heart that shouldn't be there, and I know it, I say, God, I don't want to do that. I want to worship you. I want to be a worshiper in spirit. Take me to that feeling, that emotion that you want me to have. That's what worshiping in spirit is. It's not raising our hands, singing songs on a a Sunday. That's an expression of worship, and that's fantastic. But that's not worship. It's part of it. We're to worship God in spirit and in truth, right? And what's that? Spirit and truth. This is Jesus' definition, so we need to know what it is. Worship God in spirit and in truth. So inner essence and truth is simply this, a mental grasp of who God is. 
a mental grasp of who God is. That's why we've been doing this series, to remind ourselves of who God is. Remember, he is the mighty creator. Nothing is too hard for him. He's the deliverer. He's the provider. He's the redeemer. He's the great orchestrator, the sovereign God in charge of our life. We need to know who God is. And the one way we know who God is, is what? Reading his word every day. If you're not reading God's word every day, you are not worshiping. And talk about it. But if you're not learning who God is, his story, getting more acquainted with him, responding in love and adoration, you can come and sing all day long and raise your hands. That's not worship. Worship is always expressing my worth for God. So who is God? Well, David, as he was uh, writing one of the Psalms, Psalm 18, during COVID, we asked you to memorize this Psalm, Psalm 18, 1 through 3. I love you, O Lord. David says, you're my strength, and I worship you because of that. You're my rock. Man, when life is going crazy and the, and, the, and, and the wind's whipping me around and the waves are whipping me around, the storms are whipping me around, I, I hold on to you, my rock, and I can't be moved. You're my fortress. I run into you as my fortress for protection. You're my deliverer. When I am in trouble, you come and deliver me. My rock and whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is what? Worthy. Yeah, that's worship. I call upon the Lord who is worthy of my praise. I want to demonstrate in my life that God is worthy of everything I can give him. Sometimes we praise God, and that's a demonstration of our worship, but there's another demonstration of worship that we don't talk a lot about or we need to talk more about, and that's uh, repentance. Anyone here ever sin? Three of us, good. (laughs) For us, we need to know about this thing called repentance. In Psalm 51, uh, David had just committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband killed. Adultery and murder, not a good stretch. And in Psalm 51, David is praying for repentance. He's asking God for forgiveness. If you, if you want a prayer of repentance, it's Psalm 51. And in that passage... Psalm 51, verse 15, David says, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. What's God, what's David saying? When I'm living with sin, I can't open my lips to truly praise you. Think about that. If you're living with sin, hidden sin in your life, and you're coveting sin, and you're fondling sin all week long, and you come and sing songs, God's saying, no, you're really not opening your lips at all. Can't hear you. David says, God, you're the one who has to open my lips. My mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in a sacrifice, or I would give it. David said, man, if I could go kill a bull and have this thing done, I'd do it in a second. But that's an outward expression. You're looking at my heart. 
you will not be pleased with the burnt offering, but you will be pleased with this. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not, despite you will not turn away. Now we're back to the heart, right? We're back to the heart of worship. In your spirit, expressing that God is worthy of everything you have, everything you are, and you're worshiping him in your spirit and in truth. You know who he is, and again, you've got to be in God's word to do that. You can't worship. You can't be a worshiper if you're not in God's word. The second New Testament passage that helps us understand worship is Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul is writing, and he says, I appeal to you, brothers, generic, brothers and sisters. Check this out. A little basic Bible study methods here, right? What's his, appeal? What's his appeal? So Paul is saying, I'm appealing to you. I got something to tell you. Please listen to it. And the basis of what I'm going to tell you is what? The mercies of God. On the basis of the mercies of God, I am appealing to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. So let's think about what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, based on the mercies of God. So we know that that grace is God's free gift. In grace, God gives us what we don't deserve, right? Mercy, God doesn't give us what we do deserve. So like two sides of the same coin. And Paul says, based on the mercies of God, if you want to worship God, just think about what God has done for you. Think about who he is. Think about everything he has done for you. He loves you so much that he would send his son to die for you. He gives you, he gives you the Holy Spirit to live within you, to enable you. To, to worship him. He forgives us. Aren't you glad of that? He redeems us. He buys us back from slavery. He justifies us. He makes us right before God. He sanctifies us. He sets us apart. And then at the end of the day, he takes us home to heaven. He glorifies us. And Paul says, based on that, no one else can do that. Another person can't do that. A relationship can't do that. A second home on the lake can't do that. But God can. That's why you worship him and him alone. And Paul says, he's the God who loves you so much. that not, he, he does all these things for us, but he's just not out there. He's a God that you can also call your father. Even Abba, Father, even Daddy, Father. There's a great psalm that David writes. All of them are great. And Psalm 63, I love this one. David has been running from, from Saul, and, um, and God has rescued him. And he's in the desert running, and he says, Man, I just, God, I'm thirsting for you like a, like a man who is just parched with thirst. I'm hungry for you like someone who's starving. And, and then he says this. I love this verse, Psalm 63, 8. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. 
That's the picture of a, of a mom or dad or, or anyone holding a child. I cling to you. My arms are around your neck, and as I'm clinging to you, your, your right hand, your strong right hand upholds me. And that's why we worship God. Because not only is he the one who shows us all these mercies, he's the one who says, hey, I invite you with open arms, put your arms around my neck, and I will hold you up. He's the only one who does that. That's why worship is more than just lip service. Jesus said in Matthew Chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, this people honors me with their lips. Man, it sounds good. But what? Their heart is far from me. Think about that. You can honor God with your lips and your heart be far from him. In vain do they worship me. Hear what, look what Jesus is saying. They're acting like they're worshiping. They're singing the songs. They're raising their hands. They look so good. It looks like a worshiper. But Jesus says their hearts are far from me. They lived all week apart from me. And singing some songs on a Sunday doesn't do it. Their worship for me is just vain. It's not calculating. It doesn't count. Teaching is doctrines, the commandments of men. Convicting, isn't it? Are you a true worshiper of God? Do you demonstrate God's worth in every area of your life? Based on the mercies of God, Paul says, present your bodies. The word body means everything. It means it's all-encompassing, inside and outside. It's a figure of speech representing everything we are, everything we do, everything we have. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice like the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you took your best goat, your best bull, your best sheep, not not a leftover from the flock, no defect in it. It had to be perfect. Leviticus spells out how you brought brought that animal to God. It It was the best of your best, the best of the best of your best, and you brought it to God, and you put it to death, and you, and you killed it, and the blood of that sheep covered your sins, just like the blood of the perfect sacrifice we saw today in communion covers our sin. And that animal was totally sacrificed, couldn't do anything. It gave up everything on the altar. And so Paul says, present your bodies as what? A living sacrifice. Die to yourself and live for God. It's all about God, not about you. It's not about you being self-absorbed. It's about being absorbed by God, being absorbed by God. Now, someone said the problem with living sacrifices is what? They keep crawling off the altar. And so Paul uses that word present as ongoing, keep doing it, because you're going to crawl off the altar again. So present your bodies, yourselves, your, your, your finances, your gifts, your service, all your possessions, your whole self to God every day, over and over again. And when we do that in worship, the inner values become visible. 
The inner, our inner values become visible. We value God, and that becomes visible. We deem God worthy, and that becomes visible. We want to serve. We have a desire to serve God, and that becomes visible in our service. As Tunch Ilkin always says, I, I, he said, I fell in love with the body of Christ before I fell in love with the person of Christ. And when people see you, the visibility of your worship coming from a heart that beats with God, they say, man, something's different about that person. That's attractive. They go through the challenges of life, and they do it in a way that's different. I want to know about that. And then we have the chance to say, here's why I worship, and here's who I worship. And you can be a worshiper as well. I said earlier that David was anointed king, but Saul never conceded. That never happens, does it? But anyway, uh, Saul didn't concede. And uh, so one day, uh, David was in Saul's presence, and, and Saul had some emotional things going on, and, and he was sued by music. And David was playing the lyre, and, um, and David looked up just in time to see a spear headed for his head, and he ducked, and the spear stuck in the wall. Saul had thrown the spear at him to try to kill him. And as a spear's vibrating in the wall, David starts running for his life. And David ran from Saul for the next 10 years. 10 years. Many of his psalms are written when he's running, written from a cave, running from Saul, uh, written when he escaped from Saul, written when God rescued him from Saul. About eight and a half years in, eight and a half years in, David said, I'm done. You ever feel that way? This man, after God's own, this man after God's own heart, the one who teaches us, the one who wrote 73 of the 150 worship songs in the Old Testament, he said, done. Saul's going to kill me. I can't remember even, I don't even know if God's promises are true. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines, the sworn enemy of Israel, because Saul's not going to chase me there. And so that's what David did for the next 16 months. 16 months, he lived in a place called Ziklag. And during those 16 months, David, this man after God's own heart, lived a life of deceit and lies. And what always follows deceit and lies? Cover up. One day, David and his men were out, and they went back to Ziklag, and they saw the city on fire. When they got there, they realized, they found out the Amalekites had come, another enemy of David, and had taken all the women and children, all the wives and children, and uh, taken them. They didn't know if they'd killed them or taken them hostage. And it says that those men wept until they had no strength left to weep. And then you know what they did? They turned on David, 1 Samuel chapter 30. They were so distressed that they talked about stoning David. Think about it. David has lost his family. And now David has lost his men. He stands alone. Alone. He is nothing. 
1 Samuel 30, the end of verse 6. In that situation, I love the part of this passage. It says this, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. You know what David found? When God's all you have, God's all you need, right? When God's all you have, God is all you need. And when I see that picture of David standing there by himself with only God, that's the picture of worship. That's the picture of dependence. That's the picture of saying, God, you're my strength. Nothing else is. God, you're my help. I thought all these other things were, but they're not. God, you're my fortress. I thought it was my retirement account, but it's really not. God, you are, you're my heavenly father. I thought I was going to get by with other relationships, but they all failed me. Standing alone with God, you finally worship, don't you? When God's all you have, God's all you need. Maybe some of you today are in Ziklag. And you're just stale in your worship. It's kind of going through the motions. You ever get like that? It's going through the motions. Maybe you're in disobedience and you've joined the land of the enemy. But it's time to come back home. And it's time for us to be true worshipers of the living God. And and just express in every area of our life that God is worthy of everything we are and everything we have. Do the same thing tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. So, Father, I'm praying for that person here today who is in Ziklag. Worship is stale. It has become humdrum. There's no emotion. There's no emotion for you, the living God, who has saved them, rescued them, sanctified them, redeemed them, and one day we'll take them to heaven and there's no emotion there. Lord, bring it back. Light the fire. Help us to do it not only in spirit but in truth and that means we've got to be in your word. We've got to be thinking thoughts about you. We've got to take away the distractions and put our focus back on you and help us, Lord, demonstrate to a watching world what it really looks like to be a true, honest-to-goodness worshiper of the living God. Lord, that's our charge today as we leave. In Jesus' name, amen.